Acts chapter 8. Open your Bibles, Acts chapter 8, verse 5. I'll have our scripture reading and then we'll jump into the text, okay? Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, New Testament, book of Acts. Whose author we know is Luke, the, the gospel writer. Acts chapter 5, and, excuse me, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But... There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Verse 10, that they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great wonders performed, he was amazed. God had a blessing to the reading of his word. This morning, we are going through the book of Acts. We, we genuinely go through books of the Bible. We start at the beginning, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we are in chapter 8, and our sermon series, the overall series of our sermon, is called The Spirit-Empowered Mission. The Spirit-Empowered Mission. And in chapter 8, we'll see an, an extremely important and tactical place where the life of this church is at, in this young church in Jerusalem. We said last week that up to chapter 8, the the Spirit-empowered mission had its focus based on the city of Jerusalem. But the orders of the Lord Jesus Christ was pretty plain and pretty simple. He said, after he rose from the grave and before he ascended to the Father, to go to Jerusalem to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, he will uh, baptize you and the Spirit will come and he will empower you to be my witnesses. You will declare me in Jerusalem and then in Judea, Samaria, working his way out, and then to the rest of the world. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And here in chapter 8, we see the church being scattered and beginning the fulfillment of the mandate to go to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel. By this time, Acts 8, the persecution had risen against the church. It had gone from bad to really bad. From verbal persecution, they were, the, the apostles were warned and they were threatened to physical violence. They were flogged. And then it turns to the ultimate violent act of murder. You see, at the end of chapter 7, Stephen, a Hellenist, a Greek-speaking Jew, a godly man, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, who'd just been elected to serve the church... What many people say was the beginning of, of the order of the deacons became the first post-resurrection martyr. Unfortunately for him, his initiation into the ministry of the church was getting busted in the head with rocks. So if any of you, you know, want to be servants of the church, uh, you're putting yourself out there, right? <laughs> and we see in Acts chapter 8 that there was a man named Saul who later becomes Paul who's ravaging the church, who's persecuting church, dragging men and women out of their homes 
locking them in jail. The apostles during this persecution remain in Jerusalem, the Bible says, and yet many people fled the city. Fled the city. They wanted nothing to do, well, not that they wanted nothing to do, but they, they, they ran from the city and they were, they were scattered about. But because God is sovereign, because God is omnipotent, God does not waste tragedy. He scatters the church, the Bible says, like a farmer scattering, scattering sea, a seed and, and, and to good soil and to toiled soil. And, and the church goes into Samaria. The gospel is preached. The gospel is proclaimed. People have their sins forgiven and they're reconciled to God. Tertullian was right. He wrote, we multiply whenever we are mowed down. Semen est sanguis Christanorum means the blood of Christian is seed, is what he said. We said last week that verse 4, if you look at your Bibles, Acts chapter 8, verse 4, the word translated preaching is not the regular word kiruso, preaching. That, that word is found in verse 5, Philip, not the apostle, but the same one like Stephen who was elected to serve. He's the preacher. Verse 5, preaching. Kiruso, he's the preacher. But here in chapter 8, verse 4, the word preaching is really the word evangelizo, meaning evangelism. They they were gospeling the gospel. They were were scattering out out of Jerusalem into Samaria, and they were telling others the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, they they were finding new homes and new communities and new jobs, new places to live because of the persecution. And while they were being sent out, while they were being planted in different places, they were constantly and regularly and continually sharing their faith of the death of the life death burial resurrection and ascension of Jesus remember last week we said that it's gospel intentionality and let me say this before we move on the sharing of your faith is not good advice it's good news God sent his only son to rescue us from sin and death. And he sends us out declaring the good news, the glorious and great news about Jesus wherever we find ourselves planted. And if gospeling the gospel, sharing your life with others, pointing them to Jesus, if it's not done intentionally, deliberately, it will be neglected and forsaken. It does not happen accidentally. We'll see that here. It has to be done intentionally. Looking, praying, serving, pointing people to Jesus Christ. We pick up our story in verse 5. Persecution, ravaging the church, Saul, Paul ravaging the church. The disciples are scattered the, the apostles remain in Jerusalem, and they're all about the gospel. And in chapter 8, verse 5, we meet Philip, the evangelist and the preacher, and we meet Simon for the first time, the magician and the sorcerer. So what we'll do is we'll look at our text on the three headings as we move through the text. First one that I want to see is the proclamation of Christ. The proclamation of Christ. Stephen will declare Jesus. Second thing we will see is the demonic opposition to Christ. Not everybody wants to hear the gospel, and not everybody's happy to hear the gospel. Third, we'll look at Simon's fascination with Christ. And we'll see, and we'll take a better look at Simon next week, but we'll get a glimpse of Simon's heart this week, and then we'll, we'll finish up with it in the following week. So number one, Philip's proclamation of Christ, verse five. Philip, because of persecution, 
went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Verse 6, the crowds were with one accord. They're not talking about the Honda, okay? It paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Verse 8, love this. So there was much joy in that city. Let me remind you that Samaria, going to Samaria is a big deal. Samaritans were considered to be unclean, a class of subhuman people. They were a mixed race, half Jew and half Samaritan, and there was hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were considered by the Jews not only a hated race, but they were considered a religious apostate. The sin of racism has been around for a long time. So Philip's mission into the Samaritan city was, was a radical step, was, was a, a, an unbelievable declaration that the gospel, that the gospel is free from any nationalistic prejudices. And here's this godly man, a spirit-filled man, going to a very difficult place, both culturally and ethnically, with the message of Christ. Not ra- he didn't start with racial rec- you know, reconciliation or political rightness. No, it says in verse 5 that he proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, look down to verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news, evangelism, that, that's the good news, the gospel, about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So he preached, they believed, and they, was, they were baptized. The content of the preaching is, is first described in verse 4 as the word, verse 5, the Christ, verse 12, the kingdom of God, and then also the name of Jesus Christ. You catch all that, circle that in your Bible. All of them refer to the reality that salvation is by no other name. By no other name, Can you be saved? To invoke the name of Jesus is to invoke his authority, his power, his personhood. Remember, they they, they thought, the religious leaders and the people thought he was dead. And now they're calling upon the risen Christ. Jesus is the object of the faith. He took them, Jesus, because they were sinners. They needed Jesus. They needed, most of all, the forgiveness of their sins. You see, in Christ and in him alone, there can be racial reconciliation. There's a oneness. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek. We are one in Christ. I take away from this this principle. God wants to reach all people, even those that you naturally shy away from. That are different from you. That may work with you. That may live near you. That may go to school with you. God has come to save all people. All nations. All tribes. All tongues. There's no room. In the child of God. For racial prejudice. There's no room in the child of God that would prevent us by looking at someone who is different from us. Different culture, a different race. 
as not an opportunity for the gospel, for a candidate for the gospel. And, and, I, and I say that thinking and hoping that, of course, that makes sense. But I, I wonder if there are some people that just drive you crazy. <laughs> Different political views. Maybe they wear their clothes a little bit funny. Maybe they have 4,375 piercings all over. You know, I don't know. All nations, all tribes, all cultures, all people. The Bible says in Revelation that before the throne of God will be every person from all nations, tribes, and tongues. So everyone will be at least a representative there of, of all nations and tribes and tongues. Notice not only who he preached, Christ, but how he preached. Look at verse 6. It says he did it both in word and deed. It says that the crowds paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So Philip's preaching like that of the, of the early church, of the, of the, the apostles of Jerusalem, and, and he is doing it with signs and wonders and miracles. Verse 7, For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out from many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So just like Peter and John, in a very real sense now, even Stephen, but Jesus now is working through Philip to continue his healing ministry. And remember what we said, signs and wonders, don't get caught up in that. Signs and wonders are God's secondary testimony to the work of his grace. They're not the saving work of grace, only Jesus saves. And the purpose of signs, wonders, and miracles was to authenticate the messenger and the message of the gospel, but it was also used to advance the gospel. Now, again, I said this last week, and I want to say it again. There are more than one way to demonstrate the gospel. The bottom line is, I believe, that we're loving people and caring about them enough to serve them. Notice in our text that Philip comes and not only serves their spiritual needs and sets them free spiritually by the power of God, they're spiritually healed, but he brings physical healing as well. He does and meets their physical needs and their spiritual needs. Okay. Now, again, don't get caught up and preoccupied with the power of the healing ministry. The Bible talks about many ways that we can love one another, care for one another, serve one another, meet each other's needs. But I think it's fair to say, and I, and I hope everybody agrees with me on this, that many times we could say a lot of things. It's when we do and we care and we love and we serve people that we put you know, the, the, the clothing, the, the skin around you know, uh, the words in which we say about Jesus. Sometimes what's needed is, is serving one another and loving people practically. And this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus did not drop down out of heaven at 30 years old, show up moments before the cross, and then was crucified on it for our sins. If that had happened, he still would have been, you know, the, would be able to forgive us of our sins. But no, God sent the Lord Jesus as a baby who entered into this broken world that healed not only our, our, our bodies, you don't see that healing going on in the New Testament, but really came to talk about our rebellious and broken heart. Jesus healed both physically and spiritually as well. And, and I think sometimes there has to be a balance. 
I think if you're only concerned about word ministry, that you don't really want to serve people and love people and meet their practical needs, what that shows other people is not only that, you know, I don't have any time for you, that I'm, that I'm you know, I, I don't have any real, uh, um, my, my whole world is so important to me, I don't have any time for you. So I can't really meet with you. I can't really talk with you. It also shows people when you don't have time to to meet with them or even to be generous toward them and and care about their physical needs. It shows them that, you know what? We're cheap and we're selfish. Both things are, are a total contradiction to what we are proclaiming. Those who are so caught up in word-based ministry and just declaring the gospel, declaring the gospel, declaring the gospel, and that takes priority, don't get me wrong, but what happens is what we're really showing them then is the contradiction that Jesus gave his life, shed his blood. That wasn't cheap. It cost him everything. The cross is the most selfless act that's ever been done. That's ever been done. Jesus did not die for his own salvation. He's perfect. He died for you and for me. So it's important to have word and deed in ministry. It's important to have both. You know what else it tells us? If we're not willing to sacrifice of our money, of our time, of our goods, what we're telling people at that point is come and join me in my tribe. Come and join my religious experience. Come and join me, but not really serving. It becomes a wooden gospel message. No one ever got saved. No one ever came to faith in Jesus Christ. No one ever had their sins forgiven because of a hot meal and some clothing. But I'll tell you what. Sometimes people want to know that you really care about them. And sometimes that gives you the right and the platform to share the good news to them about Jesus Christ. Now, I could be wrong, but I think, I know, I know many of you here, I, I, I think for a lot of you here, it's easier for you to serve people. You see a need, they need a coat, they need food, they need a, a, a car ride to the doctor. I can serve, I, I, I'm good with that. But I'm not really good at telling people they need to repent from their sin and trust Jesus Christ. Could be wrong, but that's what I think. So let me give you a little bit of advice. Actually, Tim Keller gives this advice to us. This is what he says. So if that's something you struggle with, you know what? I know Jesus died for my sins. I know he rose from the grave. Yeah, I could serve people. I got time. I can make them food and stuff. But how do I do that? How do I, how do I tell them about Jesus? Let me give you a couple of things. Okay, you can jot them down. Number one, Tim Keller's advice says, number one, let other people know in your school, in your neighborhood, in your neighbors, at your job, let people know that you're a Christian. I know that sounds crazy. But maybe there's some people here in this room right now who work with someone every day don't even know that you're a Christian. Let them know that you're a Christian. Let them know that you have faith in Jesus. Let them know that you're a Christian. Starting there. Let other people know that your Christian faith means something to you, to you personally. Look for opportunities to show your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your, your, your schoolmates. Let, look for opportunities to show them that your faith has helped you in areas of your life, maybe in your marriage, maybe in, in, in worrying and how, how Jesus tells us not to worry. 
Maybe it's how you find joy in the midst of working with a, a, a difficult boss. How has Jesus, how has your faith, how has the Word of God, how has the Holy Spirit taught you how to deal with certain things in life that all of us experience? He says, look for a few simple behaviors that you should be doing that will lead in a very organic way into a deeper spiritual discussion. What he means is, like going to church, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, we had, you know, uh, uh, we had this done, or we had a lunch fellowship at the church, opening up ideas. Talk to people about how you serve. Maybe you serve at a, at a homeless shelter or, or at a soup kitchen or working for the Habitat for Humanity, whatever you do in the community. All those things could be segues into the gospel. I serve at a soup kitchen because, you know what? Jesus came not to be served, but to, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And let me tell you about that. You know what? I... I I'd love to go to church because I just need to be reminded of the amazing grace of God in my life. I, I just get so caught up in, in just trying to do, 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 and be, be, you know, and, and I'm just reminded that God loves me and he loves me enough to, to forgive me right where I'm at and, and he's working on me. Oh, really? I love, to, I love to build houses. You know why? Because every time I'm up there and I'm helping build this house, it reminds me that we're in a broken world and someday there'll be no hunger and there'll be no people without homes. Really? Yeah, someday Jesus is going to come back and you know what? His brokenness is going to be healed. Looking for ways. Looking for ways. Keller also says, you know what? You don't always have to get the whole gospel out and the very first conversation. And please, he says, don't get into debates immediately about creation and evolution. Topical stuff. Keep it focused on Jesus. I think that's good advice. Philip went to Samaria with a very simple message. It was a totally different culture. I'm sure he had to learn to contextualize the gospel, sharing the gospel with that particular culture. But the, the gospel and the core of the message was simple. He preached Christ. He preached the word of God. He preached the gospel, the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus. And let me just point out one thing as we move on. Notice in, our, in the context of what we've read how Luke begins his story in, verse, in chapter 8, in the beginning of this chapter, with persecution and rejection in one city, and yet there's acceptance and joy in another city. You see that? So, verse 8, there was much joy in that city. The word of God was rejected and yet received, there was persecution and there was great joy. What a contrast. If we have Christ, if you know him, you love him and trust him, then even in the midst of severe persecution, there can be joy. It's not about happiness. The joy you and I have, it's about knowing Christ. And I think Luke wants us to see that. Persecution ravaging the church, rejection, opposition, and yet here's a city. Here's a city receiving the word of God, seeing the power of God, and there was great joy in that city. Second demonic opposition to Christ. Verse 9. But there was a name. Dun, 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 dun. It's like, you know, the opposition, here we come. But there was a name, man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and he amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. I wonder where they got that from, right? 
him. And they paid attention to him, verse 11, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now, I think verse 7, which we've already read, the demonic deliverance and the healing goes along with verse 9 and 11 because I, I believe that one of the reasons God allowed Philip to do the miracles that he did was for the impact that he would have on this city and on a man named Simon. Simon was a miracle worker. Simon had impressed the people of Samaria with his tricks and his magic. Now, I don't think it was simply you know, a good magic trick and in a sense of a, like maybe you know, a deck of cards. It was sorcery. There was demon possession. The ability to control by demonic power. This ability that Simon seemed to tap into gave him great notoriety. He, he, he was well known. Very popular. The text says that he called himself great. In your Bibles, you might have the word uh, above this uh, above this heading, Simon Magus, which means uh, great. It's a Latin word for great. It's, it's the Greek word for magic. He was a man of magic. He was a man of, 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 of power. So I think Luke is telling us about the demonic influence in verse 7 because many of the Samaritans were under his spell, under his, his power in that sense, under this guy's satanic deception. He's been making a a magnificent, that's where he got the name, great impact on the city. But things are going to change. And as Philip manifests the power of God, it says, look at verse 7 again, the unclean spirits were saying with a loud voice. What does that show us? It shows us that they, they were being forced out. They were being expelled out. That they were in once in control and now they were defeated and they, and they were going against their will and they were, they were screaming coming out of people. Verse 7, they came out of many who had them. That's control. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Let's look at Satan's plans, his power, and his parting as we look at this heading here. Look at his plan. I believe, this is what I believe, especially in modern America, 2014, I believe that Satan wants us to believe that either he doesn't exist, there's no such thing, or he wants us to live in such fearful, uh, frightful, uh, uh, to be in such fear of him that we are, we are frozen in our fears. I love Keith Green's song. He says, no one believes in me anymore. I used to uh, walk around, but now I just walk in people's door. No one's watching for my tricks because no one believes in me anymore. I don't know where you're at with, with your Bible, with your faith, with understanding Scripture, but to deny the existence of demons and Satan is to deny the authenticity of the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The Bible and the Scriptures and, and, and the New Testament reveals that Satan is real. Personal pronouns are used in Scripture. I and we are clear indications of his personhood. They can think. They can make decisions. Their goal is to frighten, to deceive, to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. Satan's primary weapon is deception. Jesus said that he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own nature, his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus goes on to say that if you abide in my word, you'll show that you're my disciples, you'll know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Peter says, prepare your mind for action. That's where this deception comes. 
Philippians 4, Paul tells us whatever is true and noble and right, worthy of praise, think on these things. Our minds are battlegrounds to all kinds of evil thoughts, sinful patterns. They become strongholds in our minds. Satan wants to lie to us about who we are in Christ. Satan wants to lie to us about who God is and how good God is. 2 Corinthians says that we are not to wage war according to the flesh. Our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power, God's power, to destroy our strongholds. We destroy every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God by taking every thought captive to the obedience to Christ. Satan wants to deceive. Now there's some, maybe you're here today, you say, you know what, back in those days, we're modern people. Nowadays, we know that all that demonic stuff in the New Testament, really that, we know that ain't true. Now we know that it's all psychological and it's all emotion. It has nothing to do with Satan and his demons. The problem with believing that, that our enemy doesn't exist, that everything is psychological or emotional, is that we separate the physical from the spiritual and we don't deal with the whole totality of the person. What I mean is that someone may have real True psychological issues. I don't deny that. We don't deny that here at King's Chapel. Some people have emotional struggles. We don't deny that. Some people have physiological, real physiological issues. We don't deny that. But that does not change the reality that we are spiritual beings who need to always put on the armor of God and stay firm, stand firm in our faith. Where can we go where the Spirit of God is not present, the psalmist asks. So when dealing with the issues of the mind, the emotion, we must always consider the spiritual realm in order to be complete because the Spirit of God is always present and our adversary is always on the loose, at least until he's put in check at the end of time. So we need to deal with the whole person. If we don't deal with the spiritual realm, we will be at best incomplete and worst deceived. So there are those who believe Satan doesn't exist. Don't deal with the spiritual aspect of it. And then there are those who say there is no Satan. Everything is, 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 has nothing to do with spirituality. Or there are those who say Satan's on every rock. You know those people. Car don't start. Satan got in your carburetor. Somehow we're not really sure how to do that. I got a flat tire. He must have shot one of his darts and missed me and hit the tire and that's flat. The totality. Deal with the physical, the emotional, the physiological, the spiritual, the total person. His plan. Look at his power. We see in our text that many people are held in his bondage. Now, according to the scripture, if you read your Bible, that the enemy does have some power. God has granted Satan to to have some power. He does some false miracles. There's false prophets, false signs, Exodus 7, Deuteronomy 13, Matthew 24, Revelation 13. And Satan would love for us to believe the garbage, the demonic garbage that's on our television. Whenever I see, and I, I don't watch him anymore, but back in the day, okay, Whenever you see these demonic shows, it's this huge power struggle going on, right? You know, it's, it's evil against good. You really don't know who's going to win till the end of the show. And sometimes evil wins. There's the man of God, maybe it's a priest, and, and he's battling and there's this big war power thing going on. That's not true. He'd want us to be afraid. 
Dr. Neil Anderson says, you know what? It's not a power encounter. It's a truth encounter. Satan's power is on a leash held by Almighty God. We do not need to live in fear. 1 John says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and disarm his power over us. Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the rulers, the authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. The believer has the responsibility to choose the truth. If we don't and we believe a lie, we'll live according to that lie. We'll be influenced by that lie. But because of the cross, believers have the assurance that these evil powers have been disarmed. This does not mean that we don't have an adversary, that we're automatically immune to his schemes. But in Christ, believers have regained the authority and power to take their stand against the prowling lion. First Peter 5.9, resist him. Our response is to resist him. Stand firm in your faith. In God's word, in God's truth. James says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know what I love about that? Before we could stand up against Satan, we must bow before God. A false prophet like Simon received all the glory he wanted it for himself. Simon wanted for himself. We'll see more of that. Philip gave glory to God. Philip was not afraid because he knew that, the, that where there's strong demonic influence over people, God and the power of God and the gospel is stronger. Folks, Satan is not omnipotent, all-powerful. God is. Satan is not omniscient, all-knowing. God is. Satan is not omnipresent. God is. They heard the commands of Philip. He spoke. They saw the gospel power. He cared for them spiritually. He cared for them physically the whole totality of the person, and recognize that God is the ultimate power. And look at his parting. When the text tells us that the demons fled, they expelled, they were violently leaving, it shows how they didn't, they didn't want to go. It's not something that they, they want to stay where they are, and yet the power of God expels them, parts them out of these people. And Luke is trying to show us that people who were at the mercy of evil, can be freed, listen, by the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, I want, I want to point something out. Look at verse 12 again with me. Chapter 8, verse 12, is the first time in all the preaching ministry of Acts, up to this point, is the first time that the kingdom of God is mentioned. It'll be mentioned again. But it's the first time since Jesus first said it in chapter 1. All the messages and the preaching of the gospel pointed to the kingdom, but this is the first mention of someone, Philip, saying he preached in the name of Jesus and in the kingdom of God. Now, I, I just want to remind you, when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, the first thing we ought to think, and some of you have been down this road with me before, the first thing we think we think of the kingdom of God is king. Because the kingdom, first and foremost, is about God's sovereign, kingly, reigning, ruling himself. The reign and rule of God. He is the king. He is sovereign. He will reign and rule over his kingdom. Secondary is the place and the people in which he rules. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, believe in the gospel, what he's saying is, the true king, 
the ultimate king, is here, and he's ushering in the kingdom, the ultimate kingdom, the final kingdom. And because Jesus is the true king, the sovereign king, when he comes, the kingdom is beginning, or has begun to be restored because the true king has come. So when the evil spirits are expelled and people are healed, the kingdom of God has come upon them. Do you see what's going on in Samaria? In Samaria, The Samaritan begin to see, get a glimpse, a, 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 an insight, a foreshadow of, of what, Full restoration, full redemption, complete healing is going to be all about in the new kingdom. When Jesus comes back and there is permanent joy in the city, there, there, everything broken will be fixed. Fear and suffering and tears will be gone. Joy will be permanent. Poverty and injustice, hunger, disease will be no more. So when the kingdom of God comes to the Samaritan, people are getting healed because someday all of us will be healed. But it's not only the demonic oppressed that experience the kingdom of God. Every child of God, every child of God experiences, gets a glimpse of the kingdom. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Every child of God that's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus has been set free from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Colossians 1.13. Jesus delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Well, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of Jesus, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of our sins. So Jesus, through the power of God, through Philip, shows up, the kingdom is seen, people are healed, people have, you know, their physical healings taken care of, and people are spiritually free. Someday, no matter what condition you're in today, someday our sins that have been forgiven will bring us to an eternal kingdom. Someday, all sin and brokenness will be reversed. We will live in the final kingdom where there is peace and joy and shalom once more. Finally, Simon's fascination with Christ, verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, though it says Simon believed and was baptized, yet Peter will say in verse 21 that his heart was not right. I think, and we'll get into this next week, I think that Simon was not a real believer, but a make-believer. Someone say, yes, he was converted to Christ. It says right here in verse 13 that he believed it was genuine, but then he saw the power of God and his heart became hardened. That could be possible. I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, you know, I didn't really know what was going on. I was doing some things that I I wouldn't even want to say right now, right? You know, you don't know any better. So some people say, you know, he was converted. He just didn't know any better. I don't think so. I think the best way to read that verse as we look at the rest of Simon next week is that he believed intellectually and convinced of the truth in his mind, but his heart did not change. There was no conversion. There was no new birth. And, in, and, and verse 13 is if Luke is trying to give us for the first time a little glimpse into what's going on with Simon. Now the word amaze is a verb tense that means it's an imperfect verb tense. It's, it's ongoing. He was continually amazed. Verse 11 said the same thing about the crowd in Samaria. They were amazed. They were continually amazed about Simon and his you know, sorcery and demonic power. But do you see the problem? Look down at verse 13. 
What's wrong with that statement? What was Simon's focus? What was he looking at? What was it that amazed him? His sins were forgiven? No. Mercy and grace of Christ? No. It was the signs, wonders, and power that caught his attention. Here's a perfect example of what happens when the power of God in the miracle itself draws us away from God himself and has us focused on the miracle. Miracles, listen, can assist faith, but can never substitute it. When the, miracle, when the miraculous assumes priority, it actually becomes a hindrance to faith. Nowhere is it more clear than Simon. You know why? Because Simon, rather than come to God for who he is, Simon is coming to God for what he can get. That's a concern, brothers and sisters. That's a real concern that we should have. That's a, that's a real concern that we should note here is that when we look to stuff, even good stuff, even the things God has given us, even the things that God has done for us, there's a, a tendency to look past the giver of the gifts and look to the gifts itself rather than to the ultimate gift giver. The gift becomes the ultimate rather than God who is the ultimate. One of my favorite verses in 1 Peter 1, uh, 3.18 Peter writes, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's me, that he might bring us to God. Christ, by his death, broke the wall that separated me from God, created by my sin. He did it by taking my sin upon himself, bearing the punishment of God's wrath that I deserve. Now that he removed that, what is he able to do? It says, bring us to to God that's it it is the highest and the best and the final good that makes all of God's promises and gifts of the gospel good justification being made right with God is good news because it allows me entrance into the eternal cosmic courtroom where I have been declared forgiven by the ones whose holiness was my greatest obstacle Yes, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, that's the greatest news. Yes, I don't have to die for my own sins. Jesus died. But if it's only that I just escape the wrath of God, now, that, that's great joy. We escape the wrath of God. But it should not stop there. It has to get us to the place where we enjoy Him for who He is. Forgiveness is good news because it cancels, it cancels all our sins that kept me from embracing and enjoying the supreme glory of Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? Redemption and the removal of wrath and salvation from hell are all good news because now in the escape from eternal misery, I find eternal pleasure beholding the glory of Christ. What you see here is the power of Philip. As Philip displayed the power of God, it seemed more fascinating to Simon than the person and the work and the glory of knowing Christ. Sin's removal, wrath absorbed, justified so that we can enjoy Christ. Not the giver of the gifts. Not the gifts itself, but the giver of the gifts. Paul put it so eloquently in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Are you enjoying Him? Are you trusting Him? This table, as we go to the Lord's table, think of this. Think this, this last thought as we go to communion. Luke makes it clear in what we've been reading that because of hatred, because of anger of the religious leaders, because of severe persecution, even because of death, the death of Stephen, the church scatters. People leave their homes, they leave their families, they leave the familiar, but because of that, Philip preaches Christ and there is life and there is joy in the city. Persecution, death brings life. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ left heaven's glory, left the Father's intimate fellowship in heaven, left all the riches of his glorious homes to be hated by the leaders of his own religion. He was scattered, had no place to lay his head. He experienced so much anger that they yelled, crucify him. And then they killed him and hung him on a tree so that you and I could have life and great joy. That's the gospel. Jesus talking about his death in John 16 says, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. They're glad they got done with me, got rid of me, but you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. I will see you again, the resurrection, and your hearts will rejoice. And listen what he says, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. I rose from the grave. The joy of the resurrected Christ can never be taken from us. Joy that will never end since he died to sin once, but now lives forevermore. He has secured for us an eternal salvation and intercedes for us eternally. And this table here at our front of here represents that truth. The bread and the wine represent the body and the blood of Jesus. They are not his literal body and the literal blood, but when we partake of the supper, the Holy Spirit uses these elements the bread and the cup to convey this message. Jesus Christ is alive. He is our spiritual nourishment. He is the bread of life, born in Bethlehem, which means bread of life. It's all about Jesus. This table serves to strengthen our faith. It's, it's the, it, faith is a human experience, that, that, that mystical union with Christ. And the Holy Spirit uses, we pray, the communion service to increase our faith, to strengthen our faith, to confirm our faith. To have communion with Christ. He invites us to this table. John Calvin, using the sun as an illustration, said this. That Christ is present influentially. The sun remains in the heaven, yet its warmth and light are present on earth. So the radiance of the Spirit conveys to us the communion of Christ. Listen. Jesus Christ came in this broken world, was crucified on your behalf, died for your sin, took your penalty, bore the Father's wrath on, instead of you, was buried, and three days later he rose from the grave and is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. It's not advice. That's good news. He's alive. It's about him. 
experiencing him, loving him, trusting him by faith. So as the band plays, we'll repent. And, and, and as the band comes up, I, I want to ask you one last question as we go to communion. What is it that God has spoken to you about during the service that you need to repent from? See, I need to repent. The Bible says that we all need to repent. Is there someone that you are shying from, you don't want to talk to, they're different than you, and God has shown you, listen, that's wicked. You need, you need to build relationship. You need to go to that person. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're here. And you've been enjoying the gifts of God, but not God himself. And maybe you need to repent of that. Whatever the Spirit of God tells you, we're going to spend some time singing, repenting, but then celebrating with great joy. As we come to the table, the bread was, represents his body. It was broken. The cup, the blood that was shed. So we repent of our sins and then we celebrate forgiveness. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So come to the table. If you're a Christian, this table is for you. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. We love you. Keep coming back. But this is for the followers of Jesus Christ. So we're going to repent and then we're going to celebrate when you're ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you that there is no other name and no other power comes close to your omnipotent power. Father, thank you that your son Jesus died for our sins, rose for our sin, rose for our justification, and that he alone can grant forgiveness of sins. We pray, and Father, that as we confess our sins, as we repent of our sins, Lord, we would celebrate with great joy as they did in the city of Samaria because of who Jesus is and all that he's done so that we may fellowship with him, that we may love him, that we may commune with him through this communion table, we pray in Jesus' good name, amen.